Hello there and welcome to episode 68 of the Hawthorne's Debate Club. My name is Jamie Clay and I'm joined this week by a couple of gentlemen to have a few conversations and discussions about West Bromwich Albion. So let me start by saying a warm hello to my good friend Alexander Newton Collins. Hello. And hello That'll be to... good for the people trying to steal my identity. <laughs> and hello to my little brother Joseph Gerald Leo Clay. Hello. Right, well, I've got to be honest, there isn't a fancy intro. It is late night at the debate club in the midnight hours, the twilight hours, the witching hours, whatever you want to call it. Alex is bathed in a soft blue light that kind of gives something of that midnight jazz kind of vibe, at least how the debate club is going to feel. It's suddenly changed into a vibrant pink. But it's not going to stop us from bringing some energy to our discussion. It might be a fairly quick episode today. Time's escaped us on this Wednesday evening, so we're recording, like I say, under a little bit of time constraints today. But we're going to be talking about the Middlesbrough game. We're going to be talking about our reaction to that and how the kind of mood has lifted all of a sudden again in the game, which very much feels like square pegs in square holes. Not sure what square pegs are, and I've never really seen a square hole. Maybe round pegs in round holes, but a game in which Albion returned to basics as promised and delivered uh, not just a a fantastic result against the informed team in the league, but a performance that has just left us feeling that confidence bubbling back up can we really do it this season no but before we get to all of the mystery and intrigue and late night discussions let me say a huge thank you for downloading and listening to the hawthorns debate club we appreciate all of you we love all of you and we would only ever ask that you share the podcast with all of the people you know even people you don't know feel free to share it with strangers passers-by anyone stuck in traffic next to you just let them know that the hawthorns debate club cares about them and is interested in their ears if you do want to leave us a review or anything like that a little rating on the platform you listen to it it literally takes like a few seconds and it is quite helpful um so even though it's only small and little it does make a big difference small and little it does make a big difference to getting the podcast turned new ears so we're going to go straight into it now again allowing the kind of late night lounge feel to take us where we need to go tonight but we're going to talk about the Middlesbrough game 2-0 a Saturday afternoon kickoff at the Hawthorns Really good atmosphere. Everyone absolutely packed in. Two early goals from the Stars and Stripes, the American hero, G.I. Joe, Daryl D.K., rocking in with two goals. That's some wonderful build-up play. Both resulting from long clearances by Josh Griffiths, which I thought was interesting, which were kind of almost Valerian Ishmael pouncing on the second ball, one-touch football, played through Daryl D.K., kind of showing us a little bit of what he... He's about showcasing the player I think many of us thought we were getting last year. And from that point on, Albion were fairly comfortable. Middlesbrough, lots of possession, but no real threat until the final minutes where Isaiah Jones, their right back that causes so many problems at reverse fixture up at the Riverside. And not so many problems this time, but a kind of open goal, which Josh Griffiths pulled off his first worldie, I'm going to say, for the club. A first of many, I hope. Well, not that you want your keeper to be pulling off too many saves, but when required, capable of pulling a worldie out of your socks is not. A, that's where you keep your worldies as well. It was very encouraging to see. But apart from that, Middlesbrough really not offering much, considering they were the 
the team to beat in the UK, really. Guys, let's start off. What did you make of this resort and performance? I only mainly watched the first half and had to watch it on the internet. But I think we played really well. We went out guns blazing. Obviously, we got the two goals quite quickly. Really annoying. My stream was afterwards and my uh, iWatch let me know that we scored two goals before I seen the first goal, which was great. <laughs> you know, that's uh, how you want to find out that we're winning 2-0. But yeah, I think this game for me rings how we managed being 2-0 up because there's that cliche that 2-0 is one of the hardest results to keep, isn't it? You know, but we did it and it was the polar opposite to Burnley. We actually defended as a team. You saw the lines going back because Middlesbrough, to be fair to them, they play some really good football and they don't worry about always going forward. They go back to the defence, they go back up and if they can't get through and that's, you know, mentality of our squad and the players there to keep to positions and not get pulled out of their positions was brilliant. It showed it the whole match, to be honest. And I think that's the reason we won because they're a good team and they could easily have got one goal in the first half because the, the pressure they put on us was immense. But I think as a team, we defended well. I think for me, defence... I think Peters played really well. He came back strong, very strong compared to yep. his not-so-great game against Watford. But yeah, I think it was just, you could see tactical nows that Corbran, I think you said it, Alex, in the last episode about Corbran said we're going to go back to basics and you could tell that. Obviously, um, we scored two goals and then we just went and defended it. But we didn't defend it like Poulis would do it. We defended it in a, a progressive way, if you wanted to. We all were in lines and then we went out when we were attacking. So yeah, I thought it was a really, really good result, solid result. Yeah, off the back of that, Joe, I really did think he kind of reset and he played the a similar lineup to that that has been really successful for him up until you know, the last two or three games, end of the transfer window. With Dean Garner on the left, Wallace on the right, Swift in the hole, you know, I think you're always going to cause havoc. But yeah, as, as you said, I think the atmosphere going into the game, I'm not sure if it's because it was a 3pm Saturday kickoff, but there was a real positive experience really like leading up to the game and it just felt like we had been eight games unbeaten going into the game and you know we were confident that we were going to see a reasonable performance against what is probably the most informed team in the championship and you know we, we stole a couple of goals quite early on and then after that it was all about game management and whether we could hold on and you know withstand Middlesbrough pressure and we did that in spades really I they didn't look like they had any real big chances other than the one perhaps at the end when Griffiths made an excellent save. But, you know, I think every one of the players can be thrilled with that performance. I thought everyone played really well. Proper team performance, you know, across the pitch. DK played incredibly well to get the two goals, but also the chasing that he did and just running over players and like proper juggernaut and you know, being that threat which allowed the defence to kind of recuperate and, uh, you know, get back together and steady the ship. So I think it was across the pitch, really, really good game to watch. It's funny, isn't it? I totally agree. It was this really complete team performance, but at the same time, there was really strong individual performances within that as well. I think it was, as you've both rightly pointed out, I think a lot of the positivity from my end, at least, was when the lineup was announced and we saw that it wasn't just this kind of philosophical back to basics. We were returning to what had worked so well with us in terms of line up in that kind of real strong run of form we definitely went back to what was working I think there was a I guess it's like an internal pressure when you've brought players in Chalabur and Albrighton I guess there is almost like that pressure to start them you've said you wanted these blokes they've come in and they haven't really hit the ground running I think there's been glimpses of the potential that they both can bring but I think Malumbi coming back into central midfield 
Wallace jumping back over to the right side. I know a lot of people have spoken about that. There was quite a an interesting point made by Lewis Cox on the Baggies broadcast this week, saying that ironically it was Jed Wallace being in the middle that led to our first goal because he ended up popping up on the left-hand side and crossing the ball into Daryl DK to score. So it does prove that at least what the tinkering that Corbin was trying to attempt with Jed Wallace in the 10, it, it can work. But I, I think as all Albion fans, we love to see him like charging down the right side. And in this game, it, it felt like we were seeing more of what we were accustomed to with Wallace. I think another pivotal thing, as well as just like that kind of anchor in midfield of Yukushlu and Malumbi, that they are such a well-suited partnership. Like they just go together so right. But I think of all the people that I was particularly impressed with on an individual level in this good team performance, I really do think we're seeing the John Swift that we're all so excited about now. I don't think it's just the fact that he is really obviously an elegant, skillful, creative player. The vision and execution of these little interchanges and passes on the edge of the area. All of those areas of creativity in the centre that we were struggling with last year, he's brought it all back. But I think the big difference in why John Swift is, and I guess this is the eyeball test. I don't know the statistics about this, but he seems to be covering more ground. When the press is being made, when we were kind of really pushing on their back line, especially on goal kicks, it was John Swift leading the press a lot of the time. I've not seen him do that up until very recently under Corbrand, and we're seeing the best of him now. Is his heat map good? Alex has asked the question about the heat map. Yeah, it, was, it looked like uh, angel wings. So if you can imagine like the left and the right and then uh, like a red dot in the centre circle. So it really looked like he was kind of a biblical performance. It was um, a spiritual experience watching John Swift. Yeah, but he just showed the end. Like the, you could see the heat map. Like a lot of it was focused in the centre, but there was kind of white spots, heat spots, like going up into the, each of the channels, which is, you know, it's where you want to see him, isn't it, rather than defending. Absolutely. And I thought he was devastatingly effective in terms of really igniting our attack. And I think, like you said, oh, Daryl DK. I mean, as impressive as his two goals were in terms of just the poacher's finish, that little bit of skill where he broke Paddy McNair's face, where he kind of then did a little lacroquette juggling the ball between his feet and so narrowly was the ball was saved. The keeper almost sat on it. He didn't even realise he saved it, I think. And that would have been an awesome hat-trick. And he also attempted a couple of times in this match, which shows he's obviously feeling a little bit more confident in his body. What Alex rightfully described to me in the game as not so much a scissor kick, but more of a drop kick. It was true WWF style flying through. The, it was high octane, high flying action. Yeah, we had a brilliant conversation with Jamie's kids, and like we were talking about who would the best wrestlers be in the uh, in the Albion team, and I think DK head and shoulders above everyone else. I think he would have knocked the opposition player's head off, you know, had it connected. But he'd be a formidable opponent in a Royal Rumble, for example. Totally, totally agree. And the funny thing about it is now on Sunday, um, because of our discussions about Daryl DK and his incident with Paddy McNair, my son plays in defence. And rather than counting his statistics in terms of goals and assists now, he's decided he wants to be like Daryl DK and talk about how many body bags he needs on a Sunday, um, like Daryl DK needed one for Paddy McNair. Yeah, should we should just say we hope Paddy McKay gets gets well soon. We also should warn future defenders playing against our DK to just get just stay out of the way. It's not worth it. 
stay safe everybody i think the thing for me about like i say these individual performances i just to quickly we've already mentioned it but josh griffiths it was great for him to get his first clean sheet for the club it was something that a lot of people said coming out of the game the chance that fell to isaiah jones in like the 90 whatever minute in real time it looked like a good save but i i didn't realize how good a save it was until i saw the replays and i've heard so many people say that even other podcasts and people people online saying it was an unbelievably good save and I just hope now that he can build upon that and really kind of I'm happy for him to make the number one shirt his like really stake a claim for it and really push Alec Alex Palmer as to who is going to be the number one going forward and I think like you said it's a place for him to start now it's his first clean sheet with his defense and against the team in form in the UK, really. It's not just championship, the team in form in the UK, all the leagues. So I just think that's going to be a big, big confidence push for him. And as a team, we can build on from here. He deserves it. He deserves the chance because we've had bad goalkeepers. We've had Alex Palmer, who's been quality when he came in. Let's give Griffiths a chance. And I think everyone is, but let's, you know, let him build. He's going to make mistakes. He's young. We're in a playoff push. It's a very, very intense situation for a goalkeeper. You know, it reminds me of the new, the old Newcastle goalkeeper setup where they had a Harper and Given in goal. Griffiths could be our Harper, couldn't he? Like, gets the chances when Palmer's not fit. I'm not sure that Griffiths would settle with being a Harper, but it's a bit of a luxury for us, really. The old Shea Given Rakeem Harper pairing at Newcastle, short lived, but well worth it. I think the interesting thing for me coming out of this game is a lot of the things that the fans were saying prior to the games, kind of a lot of the analysis and the the talk on Twitter and social media about some of the mistakes. I think people were quite just quite openly calling them that Corbin had made some questions over the lineup decisions, particularly the inclusion of Albrighton and Chalabar. Like it's so, I mean, for me, it's refreshing to see a manager that actually recognises what the fans recognise does something about it before it becomes a rut and changes it. What do you think Corbin makes of the, the changes that he's made? Do you think this is now he's he will keep this squad? I, I imagine there'll be a certain element of rotation, but do you reckon this is this is the formula and he'll stick to it now moving forward? Or, or do you reckon we can expect to see him kind of bring players in and out? I, will, I just want to correct you on the uh, the fans. I think he, he's listened to the podcast. Yeah, We okay. said it last week and uh, he's done it. No, I think this is going to be y- your team you know, the crux of your team. There may be changes due to injury and you might see Dean Garner coming out every so often if we're playing a more defensive. But I think Dean Garner played really well and mm. really, you know, tracked back in the game. But yeah, I just think he tinkered to allow these new signings that came in. But I think he's realised now that let's go back to the players who started with him and they were doing a good job. And it's great having all Brighton and Chalibre on the bench, isn't it? It's not, you know, it's still nothing to, you know, like they're going to come on and make a difference. Okay, for example, Adam Reach, utility player. He's not the exciting one, is he? You know, having Chalibre coming off the bench, I think opposition teams will be like, oh, this is a difference. And the manager has to think, especially with Albrighton, the opposition manager has to think. That's what we've got with those two players. And I think he needs to utilise them like that. I think he will start some of them in some games if we've got a few games in midweek. But I think what we saw against Middlesbrough is the crux of the team will, will finish in the playoffs. I think what it is, it's about putting Malumbi-shaped pegs in Malumbi-shaped holes, really. That's the important thing. Because if you try and stick a Chalaba-shaped peg in a Malumbi-shaped holes, 
It don't fit properly. Well, it's going to be much bigger than it, isn't it? Good. Saying about Malumbi, though, I think he makes the team tick because the energy, if we are losing, he's still running around trying to G up the fans and give a bit of an elbow into a into a player of the opposition to try and G up the players on the pitch. And I think you need that type of player because that is what we've lacked in previous seasons. And Malumbi is that player. In a horrible way, he's a poor man's kind of Gallagher. He is that similar type of ilk of a player where he'll put a challenge in, where fans love challenges if he puts a hard, hard challenge in. Brilliant. He also loves a Ronaldo chop. I've noticed that as well. He loves to try and chop. He's just total unpredictability. He's like, like we said it last week, he's Carlos's chaos energy that he can just unleash at any point. He is unpredictability personified. I don't know whether Jason Malumbi is going to play the ball backwards poorly to a defender or play an Iniesta-style through ball. I don't know whether he's going to put in a crunching challenge or do a little fancy flick. It is just anything is possible with Jason Malumbi. It's no... And I'm sure he's kind of, like you saying, just keen to bring an energy and a passion. He just makes sense in our team. When you've got all of these other players that bring all of their little bits of quality, you need someone with a bit of bite, someone who's going to rub people up the wrong way, shake a few cages, ruffle a few feathers. Anything else from the Avery, Alex? Yeah, um, I think he's the type of player that you know, you'd know you go to war with, wouldn't you? He's got all those soft skills that I keep talking about where we you know he's a proper battler and he'll, he'll look after the other players if someone from the other team goes in quite harshly in a challenge to one of our players he'll be the first there like getting stuck in and you know having to go at them so I think you need that really in our team in terms of ornithology I would say that Jason Malumbi you know the clue might be in his name could be a jaybird perhaps quite colourful good I mean, I think we've evolved. I think we've settled on Woodpecker last week, but he's evolving every week. And I love this idea that he's someone that we go to battle with because little known fact about him, he's actually one of the best hand-to-hand combat specialists in the world. Not many people know that about him, but he is. He's also a sharpshooter as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That film, American Sniper, is based on him. Yeah. Very good. Right, well, I think that is a pretty good discussion about the Middlesbrough game. Certainly plenty of optimism around again. And I think we've kind of sewn up now, put a bow on an ugly, ugly February. And I think there's reasons to be optimistic about the March schedule. Anyone fancy dipping into the interweb to try and find out what the March schedule is? But as far as I'm aware, it's much friendlier. I think we've got Hull, Wigan, Huddersfield and then Sheffield United maybe I think something of that if memory serves that's the archives in my brain I've got them here Jamie it's Hull on Friday the 3rd of March Wigan on Tuesday the 7th Huddersfield on Saturday the 11th Cardiff 15th of March Sheffield on the 18th of March and then 1st of April so we've got one two three four five games in March and I would say the tough ones that jump out of me, probably Sheffield United on the 18th of March away from home. And then Other there's an that, international well, break, isn't there, I think. What would you guys say then? Obviously, we predicted the February points tally before last February. What do you think we could like to see before the next international break, <laughs> these five games or so? What do you think? I didn't hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon, so five games so there's 15 points to play for that is top maths thanks i reckon i would take nothing less than 12 points 
Joe is confused by an uncertainty with his internet connection. But Joe, do you get what the question is? Yes, I do. I think I'd love 13 points drawing against Sheffield United away, but I don't think we have a great record away at Sheffield United. So I think anything between the 9 and 12 points, even if it's 10 points, I think that's a good month because it's a lot of fixtures in one month as well. you got to remember, there'll be a bit of rotation on there. I think that gets us into sixth place at the end of the month if we keep that up. I think quite an interesting dynamic to consider as well is most of these teams that we're going to come up against will shut up shop. You know, they'll be parking the bus. So I imagine it'll be quite difficult to score goals and unlock a lot of these teams. So it's going to be quite an interesting month to see how we play, really. Yeah, I think I agree with both of you. I think it's as much as these teams present opportunities to pick up points, my expectation is that we should win a lot of these games. I think 12 points would be where I'd be kind of setting a decent mark. I think that's we've really done well if we get 12 points. 15 points is obviously the dream, perfection. But I think, yeah, I can see it more realistically being like 9, 10, something like that. Yeah, I think if you look at the form table at the moment, and it takes it from the last six games, I know we're talking about five, but third is Blackburn with 12 points over six games, and then Burnley's second with 14 points over six games, and Middlesbrough's 15 over six games. So if we're talking about five games, I think, yeah, you're right, about the 9-10 mark is going to be in the top one to three or four teams in the league if we keep to that. And I think that is going to put us up quite high up in the league. Well, it was interesting. I think one of the conversations, again, they had on the Baggies broadcast and not just to kind of lift some of the things they were talking about, but I do think it's a, it's just statistics, basically. So I think it's fair fair game to chat about this, is that the, the average points total to finish six in the championship over the past few years has been extraordinarily high, like in the mid-70s, um, which means that we've got to pick up practically... 30 points there or thereabouts from 13 games, which means between now and the end of the season, we can only realistically afford to drop about 10 points, which is remarkable, really, how good our form is going to have to be to kind of get to where other teams have been to scrape the playoffs. Yeah, I I just don't, I can't see it being 70 points this year. If you think from third to us, which is Middlesbrough to us at the moment, there's 11 points, no, 9 yeah, points. It's it? much more congested this year. I think yeah. you're right. I think the points tally won't be quite as high as it has been in previous years. I think you're looking at probably 65 points, I think. Uh, but I also think in that, in the same line of what you're saying, is that there's going to be teams that miss out by goal difference and one or two points, whereas in previous years, there has been the playoffs are kind of set with three games to go. Do you know what I mean? It's Whereas I think this year we're really going to see, I think it'll be like, what was that crazy group in the F, uh, in the World Cup where like Japan, Spain, Costa Rica and Germany were all going through at one point. I think the playoff changes, the playoff spots, there'll be a few teams that go in and out over the final 90 minutes of football on the last day. That's my prediction. And I think we'll be one of them. And I hope that, will be one of the teams that is looking out rather than in. Is that right? Yeah. Before, have you got the uh, form table open? Yeah. What other teams are like towards the top of the table that are around us at the moment out of interest? So, first is Middlesbrough Burnley, second Blackburn, 
fourth is Bristol City. I think one which is quite alarming is Coventry City of fifth and then Millwall sixth, Norwich of seventh, all around us. Sheffield United are surprisingly eighth, Luton, Sunderland, Hull, and then you get to us and Stoke. So it's a lot of the teams who are above us are in those positions in the form. And if you think of percentages and all that, they should dip, some of those should. So I think the teams like Luton, Millwall don't seem like they're going to ever dip at the moment, but Luton will dip because, as you can see, Sheffield United have dipped and they're one of the best teams in the league. So I think, hopefully, we're back on the up. That's all we need to hope. I think if we just do our job, and I think this is what everyone will think if we do our job, but we do need help in hand from other clubs, don't we? We need, Mm -hmm. you know, the likes of QPR who have had, who have got one point in the last six games, beating the likes of Luton and Millwall would be great. Yeah, I think something to take into account as well, using the form table, is that we have had a very difficult February. You know, we've played a lot of tough teams there and we've got a much easier, well, on paper, a much easier March. So, you know, that's something to take into account as well. I'm not sure, like, if you look at the form table, what the uh, fixture lists for each of the clubs have been and how that plays into it. But it's a good, like, finger-in-the-air type litmus and you know, test. And you know what's interesting? The goal difference is so similar as well. Like you've got Millwall, Luton on plus eight, the same as us, plus eight. You've got Sunderland on plus 11, Norwich on plus 11. Watford is quite low on plus three. Coventry is plus three. But everyone's around the same as well. It's yeah. going to be such a tight ending. I think you, the likes of Middlesbrough are in the playoffs. I, 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 don't, I can't see them dropping that form and dropping out of it. They've got plus 16 as well. But Burnley have got plus 40. It's yeah, it's wild how good they've been this year. No, it's pretty encouraging. I think, like you said, the statistical phrase for what you're looking for, Joe, I believe is variance, that some teams will drop back to the average and some teams will rise up to the average and across the rest of the season. I just think that we've got enough to find ourselves in the top six squads at the end of this still. I really do believe, despite our blip, I think there's plenty of reasons to be encouraged. Let's talk about a couple of other things then. One of the things that crept up again was this protest, the Action for Albion protest after the game on Saturday. Obviously, we spoke about it a little bit on last week's podcast and our kind of thoughts and feelings about the protest. Obviously, we're, we're, we support the guys in action for Albion, really think they're doing great work, really. And obviously, these are the guys that there's a lot of our own, like, behind the scenes. There's a real lot of effort and sacrifice that goes into being the people that head up these and pioneer these initiatives. It takes time. It takes effort. So you do appreciate that these guys are a lot of stuff is falling on their plate for our benefit so that we don't have to do all this behind the scenes organization and the meetings and the the social media groups and all of these different things. But it quickly emerged on Saturday that um, obviously the protest for the Middlesbrough game wasn't particularly well attended. I think from the scenes I saw at the Reading game, this real kind of mass of bodies, whereas this time I think there was, I think the, the guy who said there's only about 50, 60 people who kind of came for the protest and he came on BBC WM and was quite vocal about people having their head in the sands and really kind of ignoring the problems at the club and I don't know, it felt strange really because obviously I think we all really do care about the Albion and we're not not in favour of the protest so it felt like I don't know it felt just like a little bit of a strange one and then you go on Twitter and again this was something that had been mentioned by other journalists and stuff that fans calling out other fans for not caring and fans burying their head in the sands ignoring the facts not realising how significant what's happening at the club is and I don't know it just feels it felt a bit of a, like a strange turn in the kind of action for Albion story, which has been so positive and so brilliant 
at bringing the kind of problems at the Albion to the forefront. and But then this whole kind of like this weird backwards and forwards that started to happen on Twitter on, uh, on Saturday evening was a bit of a strange one for me because I, I do think a lot of people care, but going and standing in a protest when you've brought your kids to a, a, a game or when you've got to get home or you've got to travel a long distance, it, it, not everyone is going to be able to just go and stand in the Halfords Lane after a game. So it was a bit of an odd one, really, for me. I don't know how you guys feel. I think they're doing an amazing job and like credit to them for, you know, doing it on our behalf. You know, it takes a lot and it's it's difficult, really. I, I can see how it, it's quite a challenge to do. But one thing I would like to see them do more of is what, what do they want? Like, what is their mission here? And yeah, I know it's for Guacamole to repay the, the £5 million. But I'm, I mean, what, what else do they want beyond that? And, you know, what are we expecting and what's what's within the realms of possibility? And cause I think that a lot of people are resigned to the fact that he's a majority shareholder, so he can do what he likes, really. And he's probably sitting in his uh, hot tub in, in China somewhere. You know, he won't be in the boardroom by the Halfords Lane and, and like Gawley knows to only too well that he, he would like to, to get the money back, but it's it's outside of his control, really. I mean, the only, in my mind, the only real protest that you could do is, is perhaps go to China and then stand outside his house, do something like that. Not that I'm encouraging uh, people to go and stand outside Guacamole's house in China, but I do think it's falling on deaf ears, really. And I, I, I just find it very difficult in my mind mind to kind of equate the the effort that they're putting into what can happen if that makes sense yeah i i tend to agree i think they also want some clarity and transparency about who owns it him to come out and basically own up to what he's done but own up to why he's done these things with the five million what you know is he trying to sell no one knows if he's trying to sell really it's like there's a bit of a rumor that he's probably open up to sell and what does he want to sell it for you know there's that type of thing but you've got to protest haven't you for these things you have to do it you know you can't just sit quiet and i understand like there's people on twitter who get irritated and I totally understand the people who don't, but you can't argue within yourself. If people want to protest, it's go and protest. If you don't want to protest because you've got other reasons not to protest, like family life, getting home, that's fine, you know. And I don't think the runners of Action for Albion mind those people. I think they just want the people there to protest peacefully and with arguing within fans that can cons- uh, result into unpeaceful you know protests you know people getting irritated walking down the halfers lane get out of my way it can turn toxic you know and i think they're doing a really good job but what do you do to up the ante i know what you're saying yeah, uh, it's really yeah, difficult it's, yeah yeah what do you do to up the ante because sometimes if you up the ante it can go unpeaceful well, i guess without this is- your meaning yeah, I guess this is their discussion, isn't it? This isn't like literally what these guys are spending hours in like message boards or forums or on WhatsApp or whatever it is talking about the tactics of the protest. And I, I think there's plans now to do a pre-match march, which I think sounds much more probably going to get much more uptake. Again, just the nightmare of getting to the Albion ground and stuff, that there is definitely going to be kind of logistical problems to anything that you try to do. But I think it's the same with any protest. And then you are probably having to fight against a lot of apathy or, as you've said, Alex, people not understanding perhaps the core purpose to some of these things. And I guess then that becomes ensuring that the the mission statement or whatever of action for Albion is, is really clear. And I guess that's when the publicity comes into it. So I do agree 
pretty much completely with all the things they've tried. And I think you're kind of between a rock and a hard place, really, because, yeah, it might not have the desired impact you want, but you also haven't really got a fat lot of options as to a kind of an assortment of avenues of protest that are available to you as a football fan without things turning toxic and ugly. I guess for me... It's just to ensure that, like, I didn't go to the protest on a Saturday afternoon, but I very much do care about what's going on. And I guess it's just that people aren't tarnished as not caring or labelled as not caring because they're not at a protest when, like I said, I've got two young children with me at the game and and my priority is to get them home as quickly and safely as possible at the end of the game. And I know the guys in Action Alvaro Albion aren't targeting people like that. I think they just want to ensure that if there is a kind of like a tipping point in terms of numbers, as far as a crowd is concerned, that people who are able to do go. But you've got a great result against informed team where everyone's feeling positive about where we're heading. And I guess it even that, something as simple as that, is going to drop your numbers right down. Yeah, I think they should brand a beer, lie out, put the money to charity, something like that, you know, where people can embrace something actually there. You know, there's loads of things, and I think they are trying to think of those things. Best name for the beer, Swallowing Lies. Very, very good. Um, Anyone else? The Bitter Taste of Lies, a bitter. Mild Lies, Lies Milds. Let's think of more. We can do better than this. Come on, Alex, you're good at these sort of things. We Won't Lie Down. I think you can't go wrong with lie out. <laughs> lie in. Lie in, lie out. Or gawly stout. <laughs> it's a stout with gawly face on it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nothing to do with lie, but just, just call it. Yeah. Just if anyone at the marketing department or the cuisine department of West Bromwich Albion wants me to come in for a brainstorming session, just let me know. Um, Right, we did actually put out a little poll on Instagram. I, I can't emphasize how super late it is when recording this and we've all got like work tomorrow. So we're going to come to some of the more kind of comedic questions perhaps in the week to come. We'll do a few of these questions. I do appreciate everyone's that messaging though. So we will come to your question. They won't be forgotten. Go on, Alex, say a bit. The beer could be called uh, car lying. Yeah, that's quite good. Right, let's get into these questions then. Chris Cook on Instagram, he has asked the question, and I quite like this one because I'd almost forgotten all about this fella. Why can't Rogic make the squad? Now, Alex, before you very kind of quickly say there's been injuries, and I think that is definitely true, he definitely fell out of favour along with another couple of midfielders like Taylor Gardner-Hickman. What? But Rogic particularly, why do you think he suddenly... St- kind of no longer even on the bench I think because he's a what's the terminology when it's a a great play to have but it's a luxury player I think he's a luxury player who doesn't defend and I think as a team Carlos Corbran needs everyone playing their part and defending as a unit because teams will come on to us because we attack as a unit so we need to all defend I think that's literally it and he doesn't like Australians yeah, I think if you've got Swift in the team, I think Rogic is a good backup for Swift. But yeah, I think Joe's hit the nail firmly on the head in that he's a luxury player. You know, he doesn't chase, he doesn't do enough of the defensive duties. A bit like Sakiri used to be with his wand of a left foot. Didri don't do enough. Do you like that? That's a joke about an Australian musical instrument. I think the thing for Rogic, with, as far as I'm concerned, is that 
it's kind of more or less what you two are saying that he has a lot of quality, he has a lot of technical ability, but he lacks a lot of intensity. And I think one of the things that I'm seeing more and more with Corbyn is that even his technical creative players have to bring an intensity to the game. Nobody's a passenger. And I think Rogic has been a passenger. I think Albrighton's almost fell into that category and been dropped. You, you can't have passengers. Everyone's got to pull the weight. There has to be that intensity there. Yeah, particularly when you've got the the team, the first eleven that we've got playing as well as as they did against Middlesbrough, for for example. There's a lot of competition in midfield at the moment, mm-hmm. with especially with Chalobah coming in, and you know it does mean that players like Taylor Gardner Hickman and Rogic are potentially ostracised a bit. Ostracised ostriches? Are they an Australian animal? No, they're. I think they're more desert, like Sahara, Arabia, cool, Excellent. Africa. But yeah, thanks for that, Chris. We do appreciate the question. Next one, we got two more that are kind of on the the more serious side, I guess. Jim Johnson, he's asked the question. Thanks, Jim, for getting in contact. We do appreciate it. He says it like this, but seriously, Jeremy Peace, was he all that bad? And man, this might be a bit of a long-form question, potentially, I guess. But considering we've got lie now and there's all of these protests, it never got to that extent with Jeremy Peace. But I guess a lot of people now look back kind of almost fondly on the Peace era. What do you guys think? I think what annoys me about Peace is that he's a bit of a... He's like, what's his name, the backup to Darren Moore. He's a bit of a snake. He does things snaky ways. Yeah, Graham Jones. Yeah, Graham Jones. I was going to say Voldemort. And Voldemort. He reminds me of Voldemort a lot, actually, to be honest. No, he's just a snake. How he got his... He was a member of the board and he bought out, was it Thompson and all that? And then he sold us for a lot of money. And then he Um, tried to kill Harry Potter. And he tried to kill Harry Potter within that time. But again, though, he reminds me of Daniel Levy. I think what the things what people were getting annoyed about with Jeremy Peace back in those times was, oh, he's on a lot of wage for what he does. You know, he's put his wage up by another 500000 like Daniel Levy does. But it's better than worrying about taking a $5 million out loan out, isn't it? So I tend to agree. I'd rather have Jeremy Peace in at the moment, to be honest, because we would never be taking out... We'd never be taking a loan from these type of companies. We'd be taking out of an overdraft, but that's it. You know, it's nothing too major and he's a good businessman as you see he sold us for 200 million pounds <laughs> you know that is a good businessman so i would tend to say i think 90 percent of the albion fans well probably 99 percent of the albion fans would rather jeremy peace being at the albion now yeah i mean i quite like jeremy peace i've got to admit and I'd, i think him and dan ashworth that combo brought you know some really like glory years for me like, i really enjoyed that time that we were in the Premier League and I felt like we were a model uh, for other clubs to replicate to, to, to like how to run a club. And I think that's down to Jeremy Peace's kind of frugalness and not being really tight uh, with the strings and almost like austerity, I guess. Uh, it felt like there was a lot of that going on where we just were only kind of spending what we've got rather than spending to make money which I think is a very sensible way to run a football club, particularly at the moment where clubs are like gambling quite a lot at the moment on wages. I saw QPR are spending nearly 200k a week more than they're earning or something on wages. Yeah, I, I quite like Jeremy Peace, but there was that kind of bad aftertaste, wasn't there, when he kind of sold the club with the loan. But I mean, for Jeremy Peace, you, can, you, can you blame him really? Again, these are kind of businessmen and he's made a lot of money out of the club. You know, he's probably peaked the club and then sold it. He might have been made false promises by Lye about the way he's going to run the club. And I remember when Lye first bought the club, I was very excited about 
this guy coming in and spending a lot of money, which he never really did. And maybe Jeremy Peace was fooled too. But yeah, he, he does seem like a typical businessman, really, where you know he has made profit out of the club, which is on the one hand you can't blame him, but on the other hand, it's you know is it morally right? Yeah, it's an interesting one for me as well. I think my issues with peace are that I do think that where we find ourselves now, it, it doesn't start with Guac and Line necessarily. I, I think Jeremy Peace had a, a duty of care to Albion as the chairman, which he didn't exercise particularly well when he clearly sold us for over the odds. And his promise to the Albion fans was that he wouldn't sell us to anyone that would De- like cause any detriment to the club and obviously his due diligence hasn't ruled out guac and lie and eventually effectively he sold it to the bloke who was willing to stump up the cash effectively without really perceiving that his intentions for the club in the long run weren't the best i think the funny thing about lies it's only in the past i guess 18 months two years where it's really got kind of ugly i think a lot of the decisions before that were just brutally unlucky like keeping pulis on the money we spent under pulis the players we brought in that struggling season then all of the different managers when it landed on darren moore all of these things worked out but then we were back in the Premier under Slav. So there's all of these different things that have happened. We're almost unlucky then with certain people that came in. It didn't work out. So whereas I do think that, I think if you had to pick now, you'd or we'd all pick Jeremy Peace. I do think that many of the problems we're experiencing under Guac and Lai are because of the seeds that were sown by Jeremy Peace initially to begin with. It's a long answer to kind of a complicated question, Jim, there. It'd be interesting to hear your thoughts, mate, so do let us know. But thanks for the question. And the last question that we're kind of going to wrap up before we kind of give a quick preview of the upcoming game on Friday against Hall. Carl Pedley, my boy. Who's going to be our number nine next year? That's a really difficult question. That is, first of all, because I don't know whether we'll be in the Premier League or in the Championship. If we're in the Championship, I reckon DK and Asante. If we're in the Premier League, I would have DK and Asante, but I think we'd need to invest in a strong goal score. I would say if we don't get promoted this season, you could look at Perhaps the fact that we haven't got a 25-plus goal scorer in the ranks, granted DK hasn't been fit for the whole season. Mm -hmm. So which one do you think is the number nine, the singular, the first? I think it's DK at the moment, but Asante's still very young. And I think if he improved his technique, I think he could be some player because he's got the right attitude. DK's actually younger than Asante, which I think catches a lot of people off guard, though. He's like two years younger. Yeah, it caught me off guard. I didn't realise that. I tend to agree with Alex, but I think Asante will come into his own. If we were promoted to the Premiership, I think he'd give a lot. I know he's kind of strong and he turns people quite quickly. So I think he would be good in the, you know, like Ivan Tony. He's not as tall as Ivan Tony, but he runs at people. He turns people. But I just think those two will be good. But yeah, like Alex said, we'll definitely need to invest in someone of the Premiership ilk who's, you know, experienced there. Because DK and Asante is going to be a blessing on them. If there are only two strikers, yeah, I think we'll be going down straight away. Well, there you go, Carl. Hopefully that's answered your question there, mate. Right, quickly, because it's so late here. 
Let's have some soothing music just to see us out here. Let's talk quickly about the Hall game. Hall really kind of struggled. Obviously, gave us one of the more exciting games at the Hawthorns this year. Um, they're in a bit of a mixed run of form at the moment. A couple of wins, a couple of draws, a couple of losses. They haven't won in the last four, though, saying that. And they've got a pretty poor goal difference. Do seem to be on a little bit of a downward trajectory at the moment. So... I'm feeling pretty good about this game. Even though it's away on a Friday night, I'm going to say that Albion are going to win 2-1. Yeah, I think, we, I think we're going to do all right here. I think, yeah, it's going to be... I think it's going to be a 1-0 victory. We are playing on our lucky, unlucky red strip, which is going to be... I just don't like us playing in that. I just think we should be playing in either home or away. But, yeah, I think it's going to be a 1-0, and I think that'll be a good victory for us, and it shows us that we can do that 1-0 victory as well. And another clean sheet for Josh Griffiths. I reckon uh, Hall City will really like set up shop and I think they'll park the bus considering the results the last time we played them I think but yeah we absolutely thrashed them on the day so I reckon Hall will kind of try and secure things but that said I think DK's going to hit a bit of form now and I reckon he'll score a brace so I reckon it'll be at least 2-0 Very very good well we'll leave it there because it's time for us to unfurl the sleeping bags at the debate club to get tucked in water bottles and whatnot so all that remains for me to say is a thank you to you alex collins cheers thank you to you joseph clay cheers thank you to listening to the date and thank you for listening to the whole thoughts debate club this week <laughs> i'll see you next week sweet dreams date club <laughs> <laughs> that's my that's my true after hours podcast